0: Hi, I'm Derek Thompson. Does the news feel overwhelming to you these days? There's a pandemic, then there's inflation, and also this crypto thing? It's way too much to keep track of. That's why my podcast, Plain English, breaks down the news twice a week. Short, sweet, and surprising, it's everything you need to know with key insights you won't forget. Listen to Plain English Free on Spotify.
1: Working moms have way too many to-dos. Switch to H&R Block and have an expert do your taxes for you. Block guarantees 100% accuracy and your max refund or your money back. And with their no-surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even meet with a tax pro in a Block office or online from home. So take a breath, moms. This tax season is better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at slash guarantees. I'm Sean Fennessy, and this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about life after the slap. It's been 36 hours since a truly shocking moment at the Academy Awards. So we're diving into a mailbag to answer your questions about how we're feeling after a very strange awards show. Later in today's episode, I have a conversation with Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, also known as the directing duo Daniels. Their new movie, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, is simply one of the best movies I've seen, not just in 2022, but in many years. It is awesome. It stars Michelle Yeoh as Evelyn Wong, a Chinese-American woman who exists across multiple universes. I know that sounds crazy. Stick with me. It also stars Kiwi Kwan, who you may remember from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, or The Goonies, along with Stephanie Sue, James Hong, Jamie Lee Curtis. It's This is a breathtaking collision of Hong Kong martial arts cinema, absurdist Terry Gilliam sci-fi, The Matrix, Looney Tunes, Vim Vendors. It's a family drama. There's so much going on in this movie. It's a total blast. It's only playing in three cities in America right now, but it is opening wide on April 8th. The interview is spoiler-free. I hope you will stick around for that chat. I promise you we will talk about this movie more in depth when more people have a chance to see it. First, let's talk about the Oscars a little bit, though. It's been a couple of days. That, of course, was a totally bizarre scene. The smack has been analyzed, dissected, overwhelmingly discussed. I can't believe how many people were interested in this single moment, if not the entire award show. A couple of things have happened since Sunday night. First of all, the Academy announced that it will convene a meeting of the governors to discuss what to do in reaction to the incident. They have a few options here. I don't really know if any of them are good options. There's been some discussion about the possibility of suspending Will Smith from the Academy, which means he cannot participate in Academy events. He can't be eligible for Oscars, an- among a number of other things. It also, I think, would make him something of a pariah in the industry. And I'll talk about that a little bit more as we get later in the episode, but uh, seemingly in reaction to the news of this convening of a panel, Will Smith did, in fact, apologize. He apologized to Chris Rock for striking him at the Oscars. He apologized to the folks that he worked with on the film King Richard. He apologized to the Academy. He effectively apologized to the world at large for getting violent on stage on the biggest night in Hollywood. And it was a good apology. It seemed to be a deeply managed apology. I think there was a lot of anxiety about what Will Smith had to say on stage when he accepted his best actor Oscar, especially the way that he seemed to contort and manipulate Richard Williams' story into one that justified what he had just done at the Oscars. I know that I it didn't really sit right with me either. I'm not sure that I was angry about it necessarily, but it felt like someone working hard in real time to justify something that most people saw and thought, damn, that is crazy. Why did you do that, dude? So... It's a it's a it's a fascinating test case of real-time morals and ethics. How this shakes out, I'm not really sure. One thing we don't know is whether Will Smith and Chris Rock have had a chance to speak yet. Uh I I have heard that they have not, but I don't I can't confirm that. Uh what Chris Rock will do is uh, something of great fascination to me, somebody who has always poured his real life into his art and You know, there's expectation that he'll find a way to communicate about this very soon. Will Smith is probably going to be in damage control mode for a while. I think people also saw Will partying at the Vanity Fair get together after the Oscar, saw him dancing to his own songs and thought, that's a little tacky. That seems a little bit um, missing the moment, not totally understanding or reading the room there. But nevertheless, he had one best actor. He wanted to celebrate with his family and friends. So he did. So where do we go from here? I don't know. Is this like a profoundly embarrassing occasion for the Academy Awards? I don't I don't know how you blame the Academy Awards. What the Academy should have done in the immediate aftermath is also a pretty challenging question. You know, someone asked us in the mailbag if if Will wasn't a nominee, do you think the Oscars would have escorted him out immediately? And if so, should he have been able to stay for the ceremony just because he was a nominee? And if he wasn't expected to win, what then? All good questions. Questions that are impossible to answer, but it does raise the question of who is in charge at the Oscars. I thought uh, Matt Bellany had a great conversation about this with Lucas Shaw on his show, The Town, earlier this week. You know, the producer of the Oscars is Will Packer this year. He's a movie producer. He's best known for movies like Girl Trip. He's not a live TV producer. He's also not a, a member of law enforcement. He's also not really in charge of the Oscars. He's in charge of the Oscars telecast, but he's not a representative from the Academy. So whose call would it have been, for example, to storm the stage and to drag Will Smith off of it on live television and to boot him from the Dolby Theater? That would have taken a significant amount of authority and a lot of certitude that you were in the right in doing that. So I'm not sure that that's really an option in this case. Obviously, it also would have been tremendously embarrassing and it would have ground the telecast to a complete halt if they had done that. So I don't think that that was the right move necessarily. I don't necessarily know why the producers could not compel Will Smith to go backstage to help him mold his reaction to the night's events. You know, we saw a lot of photos of Will conferring with his publicist and conferring with Denzel Washington and Tyler Perry. That did lead to that fascinating moment in which Will quoted something that Denzel said to him while they were sitting together and talking after the slap. But You'd imagine that you'd want to get a chance to talk to Will to help guide him to a way to communicate about what had just happened and not make people feel even more queasy in the aftermath of everything. I don't really know. You know, on Sunday night, if you listen to this show, you heard me completely bewildered by what had just happened and straining to have an opinion about anything because this is such an unprecedented event. I still think there is something kind of funny about it, even though I think that there is something deeply sad about it as well. It obviously was... A manifestation of somebody who was having a really raw moment at the end of a long cycle of personal exposure, not just in the award cycle, but in writing and releasing a memoir and in having his marriage dissected publicly for years and just being in the pressure cooker of an environment. That said, Will Smith's been the butt of tens of thousands of jokes, as has his family. He's living a very public life out loud. So, what he did is just still confounding to me. Anyway. Let's, let's pivot out of that, because there's just not that much to say at the moment. I'm sure more will happen in the near future, but we shall see. The show itself had 15.3 million viewers. On this show, I predicted 16 million. Not bad. I did go over, but pretty close estimation. I had a feeling there was going to be a bump because of the inclusion of movies like Dune that a lot of people are invested in, and also because we had hosts this year. We had certainly a lot of pomp and circumstance. We had talk of songs from Encanto being performed. There's a huge audience for that film. I wasn't stunned. 15.3 million was characterized in the press yesterday as a 50% bump from the dismal ratings from 2021. That's not the right way to position this. 15.3 million viewers is still really, really bad for a show like this. That is still in the neighborhood of 60% off or 70% off where it was many years ago. And so the show is not really coming back in the way that someone like I had hoped. And I've been growing a little bit disenchanted with my own bit about trying to save this show or get people excited about the show because I know that I basically have wasted my life doing so. There was That was never going to happen. The movie industry has completely changed. Streaming has upended things. Broadcast television does not matter as much as it does. The Academy does not matter as much as it does. Movies don't matter as much as it used to. And so the Oscars is now more on par with I don't know, maybe the masters, something like that, you know, an important event that people really look forward to that has a core audience and maybe it's accumulating younger viewers along the way, but not at the same rate that it was. It's not as nationally debated or obsessed over unless something like the Will Smith event happens. The thing is, is there's no way to guarantee something like that can happen again. Now, should Will Smith and Chris Rock reunite and introduce the Oscars next year? if the producers can get them to do that, they should, because that's something that people will automatically tune into. Is that a little bit gross to capitalize on it? Maybe, maybe not. I'm not not really sure. I think if it can be done in good fun and everybody is on board with it and nobody is being forced into it, that's a way to maybe take advantage of this once in a lifetime generation, whatever moment. But 15.3 million viewers is, while not utterly disastrous, I think confirmation of where we felt a lot of this was going. And now that we are you know, not out of the pandemic, but in a different phase of the pandemic and movie theaters are back open and, and kind of thriving. You know, the the performance of The Lost City over the weekend, which made over $32 million is a really good sign. The Lost City is an original movie headlined by two big movie stars, Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum. It is not necessarily really an original movie because it's basically just romancing the stone, but that's neither here nor there. It's, it's an original story and a lot of women showed up to see it and a lot of people showed up to see the Batman. A lot of people showed up to see Dog. A lot of people are showing up to see movies in movie theaters, which I think really bodes well. It bodes well for the industry. It theoretically bodes well for the Oscars, though I would say we're now in a confusing state of understanding who's seen any movie at any given time. Probably bodes well for this show. I love going to the movies, and I love talking about movies that I saw in a movie theater and encouraging people to check them out. We got a great reaction to the that the Sean and Bobby pod recommending movies from 2022. So we'll definitely run that back. Maybe every quarter we'll pick out 10 movies that I really liked that you have to track down. Anyway, let's, let's, let's get into the mailbag. Speaking of Bobby wax, what's up? Welcome back. You were not around on Sunday night.
2: No, I was not just just living my life. (laughs) Hopped back online, got to see the discourse. Got to see a totally normal one unfolding before my very eyes on Twitter.
1: Share share your controversial take. You you believe that Will should have kept going, right? He should have continued to slap Chris Rock seven, eight more times. I'm just gonna say no comment. Okay.
2: I'm just, I'm just <laughs> gonna read these these well thought out questions from the big picture listeners, whom I
1: love very much, about Netflix. A lot of people want to know about Netflix, Sean. Yeah, are they you surprised? Do. Well, I tweeted something, I guess, somewhat provocative, and I think that that may have inspired some of these questions. So let's let's dig into it. Uh, Rob asks, is the anti-Netflix bias
2: real or are we just reaching?
1: Yeah, the thing I I tweeted was that um, in the past three years, uh, three big Oscar plays have uh, come across. The Irishman, which had 10 nominations, Mank, which had 10 nominations, and The Power of the Dog this year, which had 12 nominations. Those movies are sick. Three sick movies. I love all three of those movies, as you know. Mank was my number one movie of 2020. I think The Irishman was like my third favorite movie of 2019. Um, I that comment was not a dismissal of any of those movies. I also like a lot of other movies they've made, Marriage Story, Roma. I have appreciated that they have done the thing where they give a blank check to a celebrated auteur. The Power of the Dog was their version of that this year. That was the movie that they they put a lot of their chips on, along with Don't Look Up. And they said, go out and win us Best Picture. We've been trying to get Best Picture for five years, lock it down. It seems like their strategy is... I don't know I don't know that it's flawed necessarily. I just think that there is it's if it's not a bias, it's a stigma around Netflix as the original sinner, as the the company that introduced this new streaming atmosphere and also as a company that buys out the time of a lot of talent. And so if you work at another studio or a production company or if you're an actor that has, had, you know, has not had the opportunity to do something because somebody else was working, at Netf- working on something for Netflix at the time. I've heard many, many stories throughout the industry of people you know being on hold for six months because they have a Netflix series coming, and then that date getting pushed back, and then that disallowing from a movie getting made. So that, the kind of bigness of Netflix and the fact that they were really first to market in so many ways, I do think that people get hung up on that. Now, whether the power of the dog should suffer because of that or martin scorsese's the irishman that's kind of strange i mean there's no way to really know we're never going to pull the 10,000 members of the academy to determine if there isn't a genuine bias we just watched apple tv plus win an academy award so it's not a pure streaming bias it's something different than that i don't know i mean you know someone here also asked "Did, did does netflix just run bad campaigns i mean Honestly, they obviously run incredible campaigns because yeah, they keep getting I all these nominations. Yeah. <laughs> so, the team that works there is 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 amazing at what they do. I mean, they get so much publicity for films. The Power of the Dog would have been an art house movie they made that made less than $10 million if it was not on Netflix. Yeah. And they created, No, they're it. doing
2: everything. They're sending out like the Roma photo books. Like yeah. they're they're doing all that stuff for sure.
1: Yeah. They they you know, the people that work there are great. Um I think there is definitely a a take that they might be peaking too early because they're accumulating these huge number of nominations and they're not able to get follow through on the execution. That does dovetail with something that I've been thinking about a lot in the last couple of days, though, which is CODA would not have won if the Oscars took place on February 2nd. And that's not a diss of CODA. It's just a, a, it's just clarifying around the nature of campaigns and how films grow over time. And if the Oscars got out in front of some of the precursors, or if it forced them to move their dates up earlier, I think it would have really changed this race significantly. Obviously, things really turned when people saw the cast of Coda on screen at the SAG Awards. I don't mean like all of America. I mean voters. I think a lot of voters were tuned into the SAG. They saw the, the cast to Best Ensemble. They saw Troy K- Kotzer on stage. They saw Marley Matlin presenting. They saw representation for that movie, and it either reminded them to watch it or reminded them to check it out again and think about how much they really liked it and there was no going back from that but that happened like a few weeks ago you know we're 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 at the end of march here we've been doing this for 7 months so you know netflix i think the power of the dog had been the favorite effectively from september all the way through the last week of february and that's when things started to change i don't it's not a campaign's issue i will say coda had a flawless campaign their strategy was incredible sending sending the cast to the white house on the tuesday before the oscars that's some real like Puppet strings kind of magic, you know, like that. That is a almost like worryingly manipulative move that they pulled off very, very well. Troy Kotzer's like thumbs up from the screening room at the White House. That's that I don't know. I, I'm good job, I guess. I don't, I don't even know how to feel about this <laughs> stuff. Um, a
2: Will asked if the Oscars was first in the award season run, how would that have changed results? Would campaigning have just shifted back or would the lack of momentum, you know, have skewed? away from movies like coda or other late surging movies
1: i mean if they had done what i was just suggesting you still would have more than likely gotten the sag awards in on like january 18th but you wouldn't have got gotten this longer stretch of time for the campaign to build and build and build in between those two moments so by compressing the time periods so let's say you have 14 days between sag and the academy awards I think it would have been harder for Coda to build up that momentum, which then would have led to the movie that most people assumed that was going to win and assumed was going they were going to vote for. Most years we're seeing now that even with ten nominees like that that binary, that two film race is emerging. You know, we've seen it a bunch of in recent years, Moonlight and La La land. Uh, you know, Nomadland last year was an exception to that, where I felt like there was not really anything battling against Nomadland. It was the favorite all the way down. But a two horse race is always going to emerge. Seems like the, I'll be fascinated to see if there's any kind of backlash to two streamers being the leaders in that conversation. Um, I do really, really think the Oscars should move up their schedule. I feel like the, the weekend after the Super Bowl would be ideal. Actually, for me personally, ideal would be the Pro Bowl weekend, the weekend mm. before the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Um, that wouldn't have been possible this year because the Super Bowl was in Los Angeles. But I, that
2: Pro Bowl weekend. Just do it a, right on the field, man halftime ceremony Oscars I don't think, I don't bang, think fix, they, the, they, fix the they, telecast
1: length problem they couldn't get enough people to show up to fill up <laughs> SoFi that's I, I think that's real I yeah. mean how many people could they get to actually show up to the Oscars plus the Oscars has to be intimate has to be small but but what um, do you think of what what if why can't the Oscars go
2: first basically if they are the biggest awards show why do they have to wait until all the other
1: guilds hand out their awards they don't have to I think the the common thinking in the past was that the precursors helped to build anticipation and they helped to create a sense of monumental event around the conclusion of this season. You know, Mm -hmm. that this was the NBA finals in some ways. The problem is, it's not just the Golden Globes now. It's not just the SAG Awards now. It's not just the Independent Spirit Awards. It's not just the Critics' Choice Awards or the awareness of the WGA Awards and the DGA Awards and the BAFTAs. And the a- Annie Animation Awards and the ASC Cinematographers Awards and the USC Scripters. I could keep going. I know all of these award shows because I track all of them. And not just me, but now like regular folks who don't host podcasts about movies are like, who won the USC Scripter Award this year for adapted screenplay? Like there's, a, there's an economy around this stuff that didn't exist 10 years ago that has created levels of awareness that makes people more exhausted more quickly. So your suggestion is an interesting one. What if they just dropped this award show on January 14th? W- would, would 20 million people watch it? I don't know. There would be more surprise. The fact that I'm able to predict 21 of 23 awards, and honestly should have been able to predict 22 of 23 awards because like, I just didn't want to believe that CODA could win. Yeah. That's, that's bad. I'm not a genius. I know some people in the Academy. I have conversations with people, but like, I'm not the best at this. I'm not Scott Feinberg spending all my time talking to the people who do this work. It's because there's so much information that has accumulated over that time that the betting markets are so responsive to what's been happening with all that information. Oscars got moneyballed. Yeah, it's too easy. It's too easy to know where these things are going. So the Troy Kotzer moment that happened on Sunday night, which was wonderful. That was a great TV moment. It was a great moment for the Oscars. He's a great actor. It was slightly dimmed because everyone knew it was going to happen. So they got to figure out something to add some unknown. And the unknown can't come from the hosts or the presenters. People don't give a shit about that. That's not going to work. You know, unless they're getting Dwayne Johnson, Zendaya, and Tom Holland to host the Oscars next year, people are not going to really worry about that. They need to find a way to strip out some of the confusion around the awards. I still think that they probably need to find a way to recognize movies that people like. The more movies they like, the more they tune in. And then uh, if we, they don't do that, then we're forced to watch Zack Snyder's Justice League enter the Speed Force on my Oscars telecast, which just like... Another my thing head.
2: that I just didn't understand when I got back on. One of those things <sighs> that you just... You're not fluent in the language of the meme from three hours
1: ago, so you don't even bother trying. But Bobby, you and I and Chris and Amanda watch Zack Snyder's Justice League together You're right. a live podcast, so you know what it's like to enter the Speed Force. You've done it. <laughs> you've done um, it in real time and I felt it
2: and felt great Scott asked can you imagine a future where there is any meaningful change to awards campaigning because of this exact thing that we're talking about a lot of the acting races have felt pretty sealed up the last few years
1: well before the Oscars <sighs> I don't know how they can change it I'm I'm for changing it but campaign finance reform for the Oscars <laughs> <laughs> yeah was it McCain-Feingold was that the bill <laughs> um i i don't I don't know what they can do. it's a It's a huge industry now. It's an industry unto itself, the campaign business. I think that there are it's it's honestly more exciting when there are smaller companies that are winning. you know there for for someone like me at least, I think for the public at large, no one cares about that. But Neon and Tom Quinn and what they did for Parasite was amazing. I think the way that they found an audience for that movie the way that they were able to tell the story of that movie, the way that they were able to basically platform Bong Joon-ho as a generational filmmaker. I don't know if that can happen again. There are not a lot of director bongs out there, but that was authentically cool and felt like a great manifestation of this same anxiety that we were just talking about. So it can produce good results, but the acting races are... Are disappointing. You know, the Oscars in the past has been a place where you might find a surprising, best supporting actress win, or or best actor win. It feels like that has really been drained out of the ceremony. And unless they move it up and unless they remove a lot of the precursors, I'm not really sure how they can change it. Cause like you can't tell people stop having parties for your movie. <laughs> you can't say no more, you know, beautiful photo books that most people don't care about. But if you are looking to build a mantle Might look nice on it, you know. I, I, is there? What would you do? How how would you change it? It's a good question because they've expand
2: obviously expanded the academy dramatically, and that led to for a couple years, people not really knowing exactly what that expansion population was going to vote for, and so there was a lot of conversation around, oh, the the academy demographics have changed so much. Does that mean that different types of movies are going to win? And now it feels like whatever momentum they created by doing that has been completely lost. So is the answer to complete to continue to expand the academy more and more and more, or is the answer for just people to stop paying as close attention so that they don't know that
1: everything is going to be wrapped up? Are we part of the problem? That's a really you make a really good point, though, which is something that we've discussed a little bit here and there, which is, you know the intention of expanding best picture to ten nominees was to include the Dark Knights of the World. And obviously, I don't know if it's fair to say that that has backfired because I think a movie like Drive My Car getting nominated is awesome. I, I do think that the way that the, the, the body redefined itself led to an outcome that they, didn't, they ultimately don't want. And I don't think they feel great about the fact that arthouse and streamer movies are what is dominating this category instead of The Last Duel. You know, it's like if The Last Duel is nominated, for example, you get Ben and Matt at the ceremony. You get Ridley Scott tribute. You get Jodie Comer, who was also the star of Free Guy, a huge box office hit. And you get to tell a story about her as one of the most exciting young stars.
2: Have you seen that film?
1: Uh, Free Guy? Yep. 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 Free Guy I fucking lost at the Oscars. you see that? <laughs> Visual effects of Dune. Boom. Um, and so without movies like that, which I think is what the uh, the academy was banking on. The movies that were in like seventh place to, in 2012 getting yeah. into the mix there would have helped, but for the most part they were not able to get that. And also the you know obviously movies don't feel as special if they're premiering on Netflix and things like that. But um, I don't think they can change campaigning, so I think we're stuck.
2: We got a listen. Uh, we got a listener question from Casey. Ten plus years later, do you think the expansion expansion of the Best Picture category to include more nominees has been a success, or do you think it has devalued a bit Best Picture nomination?
1: I think it has been a success and I don't think it has devalued the nominations, but I think it's only in terms of like artistic merit and exposure. I don't think it's in terms of ratings. So if we're equating success with ratings, I don't think it has meaningfully helped. Um, I do think that it is, it's done great work for great filmmakers. And if the Academy is in part meant to preserve and champion the work of movie artists, you know, uh, Reisuke Hamaguchi was nominated for four Oscars on Sunday. That's, yeah. That never would have happened 10 years ago. So something like that happening is, is really extraordinary. And it has not come at the expense of the Steven Spielbergs of the world, or it has not come at the expense of the Jane Campions of the world, or the Paul Thomas Andersons. So that, that part of it has worked. It has made the Oscars more interesting in terms of what kind of films are represented. It's just made it smaller, honestly, which I never would have guessed. If you would have told me in, in 2009 when they made that decision, what's, what's this going to mean for the show? I would have been like, you're probably going to see some more comic book movies and more animated movies get nominated. There hasn't been an animated movie nominated since Toy Story 3, I think. So yeah. that's, that's pretty wild. You know, animated movies represent like 15% of the whole movie industry right now. And most people see them, most adults see them because most people have kids. So I don't know. It just, it just didn't go in the direction that, that everyone thought it was going to go. Whether it's a failure, it's not a failure. It's just a different kind of success.
2: I think two things can be true at once with the expanding to 10. Like, there are movies that now get exposure that they would have never gotten by getting a Best Picture nomination. But I also think at the same time, you know, 6 through 10 usually have no chance because of what we're talking about. They have have no chance from the time that they're like the Licorice Pizza nomination, which maybe wouldn't have happened if it was only a field of five. That that's why that film is not even part of the conversation, even though it was nominated for Best Picture,
1: you know? But, but, so I think, I don't know if someone asked us this, but somebody asked me this at some point in the last couple of days. There's a strong case to be made that Coda was not in the top five vote-getters for, for the nominees, and it did manage to pull itself up. Now, I think that that's very rare. I don't think mo- many movies are capable of, of making a change like that. The Licorice Pizzas and the Drive My Cars of the World, which are deeply idiosyncratic, we're not streaming when they were nominated. Um, you know, in one case, the film is in a foreign language. You could make the case that Paul Thomas Anderson's films are also in a foreign language of a sort. <laughs> um, I, I those movies, you're right, are never going to be able to leap from like number eight to number one. But the codas of the world feel Even good. Parasite movies. too. Parasite. I, I. And I wonder what what the. I. These are. This is the kind of data that a that a couple of saber dorks like you and I would yeah. love to see is what was the voting It's been at- moneyballed without the public war calculations. Yes, that's right. That's right. And who is the, Ma- the Mike Trout of this industry? I need to know. And so, like, if they had told us like what order the movies were in this year, just like I've always been wanting them to kind of eliminate the movies in real time on the telecast to show us what the votes were like, I think that there would be one, there probably would be too much kind of statistical analysis going into this show even more so than exists. But it would create fascinating questions in real time about how people's opinions change and how opinions shift from the guilds. You know, like I mentioned this about the director's branch, that there was something interesting about Sean Hader and Denis Villeneuve not being recognized for best director. Denis in particular, because dune won six every single thing about the film was acknowledged other than that yeah who who do you think hired made all all those choices yeah who do you think like uh, uh, managed this production like it's it's actually kind of it's like borderline offensive that he wasn't nominated honestly anyway um if you ask me who should have come out of that five it's kenneth Branagh. no disrespect to kenneth Branagh, but belfast is not the achievement that dune is in my opinion anyhow um but because of that i think what you saw was the director's branch votes on the directors who get into that category and then when the whole world votes on best director, they think about the movies that they really like and they really liked Dune and they really liked Coda. And that's why those two movies won nine awards. And the people who made most of the key decisions on those movies were not nominated. And so the way that the, the award show itself is organized, it shows like a shift in, in real time from nomination to wins. I don't know how you solve this necessarily, though. I don't know if there's a way to fix it.
2: I don't know either. Let's tie the bow on Netflix. Andrew asked the final net Netflix question, does their losing track record lead them to stop investing in quote-unquote Oscar movies?
1: I don't think so. I don't think so. And I don't think it's just because they really want to win Best Picture, quote-unquote, or Ted Sarandos really wants to win Best Picture. It's not really about that. Um, I'm sure that motivates some people that work there, and there's some. It, it started there for sure. But I think there's a, there's still an amazing halo effect to saying We gave Martin Scorsese $130 million to make The Irishman. We gave Jane Campion $40 million to make a Western in New Zealand. We're giving Noah Baumbach, TK, I don't know what the budget of that movie is. Let's say for the sake of conversation, it's $40 million to adapt White Noise. Very few studios are doing that right now. Maybe Apple will start doing it more. They're obviously doing it with Killers of the Flower Moon. They're making the F1 movie with Brad Pitt, which you and I are very fired up for. Let's go. Um, so we may see more streamers do that. Maybe with Amazon Prime's acquisition of MGM, we'll see more big tent movies like that from that studio as consolidation begins around Hollywood again. But there's still Netflix is still in a league of its own in terms of empowering great movie artists to kind of make the movie that they've always wanted to make. And... That's a story that they can tell in the business. The minute that they just become the is it cake place or the Floor's lava place, they're going to seem like the, the newfangled like Discovery Channel or, you know, like Animal Planet or whatever. You know what I mean? Like it's not, it's just not going to seem like a very special Hollywood industry business. And Sarandos, who still, you know, largely oversees the content on that in that company, is a movie dude. He's a video store guy. He's a person who really cares about movie art and, so I don't expect them to slow it down in the short term. In the long term, if the stigma concretizes and people are like, Netflix is not allowed to win this award and we will push it every year.
2: Maybe, maybe saying that that, that though?
1: Like, why does
2: this keep happening? Because we interview a ton of directors on the show. You talk to a ton of directors. Many of them make movies for Netflix. They do. And they usually speak glowingly about the experience because of what you're describing. Because Netflix gives them the budget that they want that has dried up at other traditional movie studios. And so who is mad that Netflix has done that? Is it just, you think that it's the the down the line folks that are like not voting for it? Because, or do you think that even though Netflix rolls out their movies into theaters, they're not doing enough to support the theatrical business?
1: Here's the truth. I don't think that there is an inherent Netflix bias. I think there is certainly, there people have feelings about the company as they have feelings about all big companies, right? The tricky thing is, Roma, The Irishman, Mank, and The Power of the Dog, in places that are not podcasts like this, are not beloved. In fact, they're not even really liked by a lot of people. People thought The Irishman was too long, boring, and repetitive from stories that Scorsese had told before. People thought Mank was a Citizen Kane jerk-off fest. People thought The Power of the Dog was too slow. You heard Bill Simmons call it The Power of the Nap. People thought Roma was... I did was, hear that? Was and dull. then I forgot about it. And then I heard Joanna Robinson remind me about it. <laughs> Power the is really funny. I don't, you know, I just, I, I can't take that away from Bill. That was hilarious. Uh, I, I don't think that anybody loved any of those. I, I shouldn't say anybody. I don't think enough people loved those movies the way that they love something like Coda, as sentimental and manipulative as it is. And so, until they find a way to bridge the gap between great artists and "quote unquote" likable material, um, they're they're just not going to win that award. Uh, but, you know, maybe that's a good thing. You know what One Best Picture? Fucking Green Book <laughs> and, and Driving Miss Daisy and a number of other movies. The Greatest Show on Earth won Best Picture. You know what I mean? A lot of crap movies have won Best Picture or okay movies, mediocre movies. And that doesn't diminish the greatness of The Irishman. I've seen The Irishman four times. It's fucking amazing. It's one of the deepest films I've ever seen about mortality.
2: Did you have to take some PTO to watch that movie four times?
1: <laughs> you know me. I just stay up till 3 a.m. Um, <laughs> so, you know, all of this whining about whether, and uh, trust me, I'm, I'm, I'm as guilty as, as anybody, but whining about, you know, why won't Netflix win their Oscar? What does the industry hold against them? It's a cumulative thing. It's not just any one thing.
2: Okay, let's move on. Justin okay. asks, which win are we most upset with five years from now? And which award are we happiest with five years from now?
1: I think part of the problem with the show last night was that there were not any objectionable wins. And so I think anybody, I think we'd be hard pressed to see anybody be angry about any of the results. I thought Ariana DeBose was undeniably incredible in West Side Story. Troy Kotzer, I thought, gave a very warm and, and good performance in Coda. I think, unless Will Smith turns into a figure of ill repute, in the industry, I don't think anybody's going to say Will Smith not only didn't earn his Oscar for King Richard, but didn't have an amazing career as an ambassador to Hollywood and an actor. The Chastain Award, everybody has kind of agreed that The the Eyes of Tammy Faye is not a very good movie. Um, it's funny, we devoted an episode to that movie on this show back in, I think, September when it first came out. And when we made the decision, I was like, this movie feels like kind of too small and too mediocre to spend a lot of time on but we did it anyway we did like an actor transformation conversation Amanda and I and it turns out to have been a little bit prescient in a way that I was not prescient about the win for coda um because once again what we talked about on that episode is how the academy loves these kinds of performances where people transform yeah. into real life figures and that turned out to be more true than I ever would have guessed and i there's a lot of admiration for Chastain everybody who listens to the show knows that i love her i hope that this just means she's going to go back to making really good movies and not making franchise entertainment. Um, and I hope she doesn't make any more TV. She also made a TV show last year. I just want her to make great films and use her power and influence to make great films. So I know this was one that she was really passionate about. It just wasn't very good. That's So it's probably Chastain or it's Coda. And we'll we'll, we'll see five years from now. I, I likened it more to The Artist on Sunday as a movie that like I think people will kind of just forget about a little bit and won't really point to as representative of anything really other than yeah. a strong campaign and warm feelings towards it at the time. But... We shall see. I mean, is anybody going to be fighting about like best the best sound winner from the 94th Academy Awards? I don't think so. What even won? Dune, right?
2: Yeah, one. Yeah,
1: Dune. Killer uh,
2: Killer sound. That's my that was my take. Loud. Loudest. It was loudest. loudest. Loudest well, that's Oscar.
1: How, that's how you, you produce this show. Is you just crank just it, up. it up. turn it up as loud as possible. Just crank it to a I don't even
2: have to turn Chris up. He's it's already up. he starts at at 11. 11.
1: What um do, uh, is there one for you that you think people will regret?
2: No, I think it's probably, I don't think people will regret it, but I don't think that people will feel as passionately about Coda. Like the case that most people carved out and the case that Joanna very intelligently carved out last week was which of the five through ten, you know, Best Picture nominees will put Coda second. And that just feels like a dispassionate case to return to five years from now. And so I think that that will probably be the one that maybe be, maybe looks wonkiest in comparison to the other nine nominees, but I don't think that there will be any offensive ones that people will look back and say, this is among the biggest travesties, like the 94 Oscars or anything like that. Yeah, I Um, agree with you. You know, we got a lot of people asking that I did not put in the mailbag here, but we did get a lot of people asking, do you think that they should single out like a best imitation category so that we can remove the Jessica Chastains of the world from the best acting category? And I didn't put it in here because it's sort of like a whole spiral of a conversation because it, it, it would definitely be executed sloppily. But I wonder what you think about that, given that you think that Chastain might be the one that people look back on five years from now.
1: It's an interesting question. Uh, they definitely would not use the word imitation. Um, maybe transformation. Uh, yeah. I think that you, you, can't, you can't do it, right? Because the whole point of those performances is that you're taking a part of yourself and using it to to become someone else and or to channel someone else, but you're not actually being that person, right?
2: Yeah. So it's interpolation, which is part of acting.
1: Yeah, and it, I think it, that kind of reduces down the craft of acting in a way that actors would find offensive. You know, Daniel Day Lewis, he he, com- he communicated, he translated what he believed Abraham Lincoln to be like in that moment, based on Tony Kushner's vision of that moment in history. He didn't imitate abraham lincoln i don't even know we barely there are recordings of abraham lincoln but we don't know how he walked you know we don't have video of him so i don't think they would do something that extreme now whether they should find a way to kind of recognize movies that are based on real life events in a more discreet way i think is kind of interesting i do think that the show needs to redefine and build up some new categories over time and I, I don't know. I've said that many, many times. I don't know how they're going to do it, but they should probably seriously consider it at the next vote to kind of generate a new level of anticipation for the show next year.
2: If you're going to spend the political, my opinion on this is that if you're going to spend the political capital to add new categories into, something like best first feature, or best breakthrough performance that you've outlined multiple, even Amanda have outlined multiple times on this show would be a much more thing to spend your political capital on because I think people can make the choices to whether or not the transformation was worthwhile. You know, like there are bad transformations or there are direct, you know, imitations that aren't really transformative and are not compelling on screen. And many of those are not awarded. You know, being the Ricardos did not sweep the
1: Oscars this year. It certainly did not. Thank God. I think um, all of these awards are subjective, but that one in particular would be hard to, to, to note. And also the public's interaction with it. I mean, how many people under the age of 30 really know who Tammy Faye Baker is? Yeah, m- most don't and so how do you even say like how do you even get invested in that award it's like oh she nailed it so then what it would necessitate is actually like more campaigning and more side by side footage of the real person and the actor and then you'd find people trying harder to just be more accurate to what yeah. the person represented instead of finding something deeper it would make for worse them.
2: movies for sure yeah, exactly and then what so, would you do with something like the master like is that that's such that's on the fence you know that's such a gray area
1: I know and that what well, we do have chris's podcast appearances to compare to the master, so <laughs> that that benefits i think c r and and the film, so we'll see.
2: <laughs> we also have Chris's appearances to compare to the invisible man. <laughs> uh, Chauncey asked of tonight's winners, who gets another Oscar first?
1: Oh, that's a good one i'm I'm racking my brain here. I don't think any of I guess there's a case that like thirty years from now, Chastain could have a second acting Oscar, not unusual for um a person of her stature of her accomplishment to kind of get one. And when she moves into like the second half of her career and is doing more supporting work or something like that. Um, Safe answer, probably Hans. I was just going to say that I feel like Hans Zimmer is, there's a good chance in the next 10 years he gets a third, right? Yeah. He can get it for Dune again. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not expecting another Billie Eilish Oscar anytime soon. I don't think Campion will be awarded again. It took her 30 years to get back to the show. What about the Um, Oscar
2: for Flash entering the Speed Force?
1: It's a good point. Flash going to get another one? Uh, Flash, There's a Flash film coming out next year. Re-enter
2: the Speed Force Oscar?
1: (sighs) Yeah. Maybe Ariana Ariana DeBose. Her career is kind of interesting, right? She's like a Broadway creature, you know, song and dance woman. There's not necessarily as many opportunities for those movies, but I think she really emerged as someone that people got got excited about. She's going to get a lot of opportunity in, in the coming years. So I guess she, there's a chance for her too. What else we got? The Goal Father asks, if Dune 2 is as good or better
2: than Dune, does it sweep the Oscars, including Best Director and Best Picture, in 2023 or 2024, whenever it comes out?
1: I think, it would be the, I think it's going to be out at the end of next year. And so it would be at the 2024 Oscars, or at least that's the plan. Who knows? The first film was a very difficult production. And so part two might be as well. Um, Filming in the desert, not easy yeah I mean all indications from Sunday night were that if it's as good that it will it could run the table. I don't think on acting performances and you know films like that don't usually win a lot of acting performances, you know the Titanics and the Lord of the Rings and the films like that that when they are recognized as you know huge event like Ben Hur, for example, like they'll win best Picture, they'll likely win best director, they'll probably win between four and seven below the line categories, maybe they'll win score as well
2: and dune would just do it in two parts like they would just do all the below the line categories at this year's and then yes. just the top two because they won't win all the below the line categories the next time through
1: not all of them but some of them they probably will like would it shock you if they won visual effects again you know because they're like if you look at the visual effects in free guy or even spider-man no way home versus dune like it's not even the same business like it's not even the same art form what they're doing like that Dune is making an effort to like make something seem real that is fantastical. Those films are not really doing that. So I think that there is some recognition for that kind of thing. I, there's a lot going for Dune, obviously. like The addition of new characters, like Zendaya playing a bigger role in the film. She's literally one of the five biggest under 30 stars we have. Um, Florence Pugh joining the cast, I think is a huge thing too. She's also in that kind of conversation. She's been recognized by the Academy before. Chalamet obviously was shown out On Sunday night, you know, is that what you would wear to
2: the Oscars? Um, I consider you a sort of style icon of the ringer.
1: So listeners can't see this, but I'm actually wearing that right (laughs) now. I have my, my, my boob tape on. It's got the jacket affixed to my pectorals. Uh, no, I think, uh, I think, I think the thing is that, um, the second half of the Dune story, in my opinion, is less interesting than the first half. And so it's possible that this movie is just not as good. It's a lot of it. It takes place in the desert. It's a little bit more of like a slow, like a a story about like royalty and a kind of rise to monarchy. And also like a much more, it's more spiritual in an actualized way. If that makes any sense, I don't want to give away if people don't know what happens in Dune. But if you watch the David Lynch film, for example, the second half of the movie is like incoherent. You know, like it's really where it goes off the rails. So it's going to be a very big challenge. But then again, Denis did an amazing job interpreting the first part. So I wouldn't underestimate it as the, it's it's definitely the odds-on favorite today for 2024. You know that actually I did want to cite a couple of 2023 or 2022 movies that I feel like will be in the conversation for 2023. I meant to mention this, like the two early Oscars is like an episode that maybe if Amanda was back we might consider doing, um, but until she gets back, I just I feel like we should just mention. I mentioned Killers of the Flower Moon already, the Scorsese movie. It's exciting. He'll be back. Can't Hit wait. Me. That's December. Babylon the Damien Chazelle movie, which is a movie about Hollywood in the 1940s. That is from a studio, will be released in theaters, and is probably going to be there. Uh, Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, Toby Maguire, consider that. She Said, I think, the Maria Schrader movie that is based on the nonfiction book by Jodi Kantor and Megan Toohey, um, that is very much about the Weinstein investigation for the New York Times. The Fablemans, Spielberg back. This is the first, based on a, personal autobiographical story from Spielberg with a script by Tony Kushner starring Seth Rogan and Michelle Williams as his parents. That's going to be a present women talking I think is up there. The new Sarah Polly movie. She hasn't directed a, a scripted film in many, many years. Yorgos Lanthimos has a new movie called poor things. I mentioned white noise from Bombback Martin McDonough has a new movie called the Ban- Banshees of inner inner um, He of course wrote and directed three billboards. David O'Russell Russell has a movie this year. So there's like a lot of, lot of heavyweight oscar contenders. Now, most of those movies don't often live up to what we think they're going to be. See again, The Last Duel. But I don't know. It could be a good year. It could be a really good year. So we'll see. We got more questions? Maybe one or two more questions? Yeah. So
2: many people asked, how can the Oscars fix the in-memoriam? <laughs> like <laughs> 12 people
1: asked this question, Sean. People uh, are mad about the in-memoriam. Don't have people dance in front of it. That's my first note. No no more dancing in front of the images. I don't know. Is it really that broken? It's like, just show us images of people that passed who we love. That's all you got to do, right? I mean, we don't need to power rank these things to draw interest. You know what I mean? Like, I I honestly don't think there's as much of a problem as people seem to think there is. I, It's weird that this has become a convention of award shows, but it has. And it's here to stay as far as I can tell. Uh, B for Benedetta asks, why aren't the Oscars the biggest day for movie trailers? You know, I don't have all the um, information on this, but I think that there are some rules around what can be shown during the telecast. in Because term- you didn't see, I don't think we saw any movie commercials. Right, We saw a lot of TV commercials, which I find to be utterly confusing to be seeing commercials for Moon Knight and the girl from Plainview and you like all this. to watch things watch yeah, this exactly it's like <laughs> would you like to see the real time death of the industry we're celebrating tonight <laughs> check out Moon Knight. Um, so I don't really I don't know what to. <laughs> I, I think that they're I, they have to change those rules uh, I think that they need to allow other studios to buy time so that they can present their films they obviously should be premiering visuals for their movies on this night because there are not, you're not going to have another night in which more serious movie fans are tuning in on Oscar night. I feel like was it last year when they used the Academy Awards to show like a preview of West Side Story? It was like a very brief like coming soon, you know, just a teaser, a teaser of a teaser.
2: It was like fifteen seconds, I thought, right? Yeah, and just I'm, like
1: that long shadow shot. Right, 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 and that was because. I believe because it was a Disney product and the show was airing on ABC. And mm. I don't know if you're ABC, do you want to sell time to Amazon to counter program all of your content? I'm not really sure. Should they do it? It's a no brainer. It's something they should have been doing years ago because the whole industry benefits from getting people excited about Top Gun Maverick and getting people excited about fucking Dr. Strange and all the other movies that are coming out this year that are really important to the business. So they should. One more.
2: Okay. Um, it's only fitting that we close with a PTA question Yeah, because you are you. Nate asks, will PTA ever get the love he deserves or should I just kill my hopes now? My recommendation is always kill your hopes and then you can always bring them back. You know, they're never fully dead. Keep your well, hopes. Zombies.
1: I, I, I have, I've thought about this quite a bit as you might imagine. Um, on the one hand, do you have a whole spreadsheet about this or is this part of a different spreadsheet? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. really have a reputation don't I Um, so on on Friday night Elaine May was recognized at the uh, governor's ball um, and she was given the honorary Oscar for her work in the world of film she is the writer and director of some great movies um, Mikey and Nikki and a new leaf and she's collaborated with Mike Nichols many many times she's written a lot of screenplays over the years Um, she's, you know, was one of the few women directors in that field in the 1970s in America who, you know, made honest to good, great movies. Um, and she's Academy Award nominated. She has two Oscar nominations, one for heaven can wait for the screenplay and one for primary colors. She never won an Oscar, even though she was understood to be one of the smartest, funniest, coolest people in the business for years and years. I kind of feel like this could be PTA's fate. He's 80 years old. He's been making original movies getting released in movie theaters for 60 years. And he's never won an Oscar despite making some of the best movies of his time. And then they're like, let's have a big night and celebrate you, but we won't give you a real Oscar. We'll give you an honorary Oscar. This happens to many of the greats. Um, He has been getting recognized consistently for the last few films, which is a good sign. But uh, there was consensus in January that Licorice Pizza was winning original screenplay. And then it just vanished that consensus just wilted in the face of, I guess, Belfast? Which again, like I, I liked Belfast perfectly fine, but Belfast screenplay is better? What? Um I, if you wanted to make the case that the worst person in the world should have won that night, okay. I I would I I I could accept that. Um but I don't know. Belfast overlookers. Come on, dog. That sucks. Is it cooler if he doesn't win one now? Yes and no. I mean like, a lot of my favorite filmmakers have won that award. Amanda yeah. and I have talked about this so many times. Like, this is the award that Sophia won for Lost in Translation. This is the award that Tarantino has won twice. You know, this is the the award that Spike Jones wins or that Wes Anderson wins. You know, this is where these, these people thrive. These really creative artists working inside this big machine. And so, him continuing to get recognized, and his movies continue to get recognized as, as Best Picture nominees. Now, I think, I think, three of his movies have been nominated for Best Picture, maybe four. Um, he's He's in the club. You know, he's there. Like, people, they worship him. But for some reason, he can't get over the finish line. And maybe you're right. Maybe it's a badge of honor. I don't know. What do you think?
2: I think at this point, now that he's been nominated so many times for so many of the main categories, it just feels sillier. Like, I think that there would be more of a kind of rebel spirit to it if he had not even got those nominations. But because he has, it's like, now those movies are in direct contrast with the movies that actually won, and in something like script, it's even more absurd. You know, the thing about it
1: is, I think if he if we had inverted the order of his two most recent films, if Phantom Thread had come out this year, oh my god, he, he would have won. He would have maybe even won best director because the field was different. What won were, for
2: script that year.
1: I don't know. Let's take a look. Fun fact: Phantom Thread not nominated for best screenplay. Extremely tough. Best original screenplay that year included The winner Get Out, The Big Sick, Lady Bird, The Shape of Water, and Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Phantom 3rd was nominated for six Oscars, but not screenplay. That's kind of weird.
2: Yeah. Because that's a banger of a screenplay.
1: Sure is. Incredible story. Nominated for Best Picture, nominated for Best Director, Best Actor nomination, Best Supporting Actress nomination score and a more oscar-y feel to it too
2: than even licorice pizza even to the screenplay yeah, Yeah.
1: period piece uh daniel day lewis at the center of it movie stars licorice pizza didn't have any recognizable names at the center of the movie I i mean the thing is is like that movie was a vibe movie it was a hangout movie it was episodic so people felt like the accomplishment of that screenplay maybe was not as big as you know a sprawling boogie nights or a kind of tightly controlled phantom thread so, like I said, if you had flipped those two, maybe he would have gotten a win this year, but he didn't. We'll see what he does next. My gut is he's going to go back to something big for the next one. If you, if I'm predicting his next two movies, something big and grand for the next one to kind of use the the accumulated power to set something on a grand stage, and then after that, pure comedy. He's going to do like a true blue, like slapstick comedy. That's th- those are my predictions. They could be way off. Who knows? He's unpredictable. I'm pre-ordering my tickets now. Yeah. I know. Well, I, you know, forget it. We're we're in for life. Let's let's <laughs> let's go let's go to two more geniuses. Let's go to my conversation now with uh with Daniel Kwan and Daniel Shiner so we can talk about everything everywhere all at once. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Would I try to squeeze in an extra movie? Maybe try to read a book? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority. And therapy can help you figure that out. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. Otherwise, you'll always be wishing for more time. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. Designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BigPicture today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BigPicture. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Okay, Sean, top three movie snacks of all time, go. Um, all right, let me think. Uh, popcorn? Obviously. Hmm. Ice cream? That's two. Oh, and, uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, of course. Peanut butter and chocolate is a pretty perfect combination. Some may even say the ultimate movie snack. You can't argue with that.
0: Find Reese's now at a store near you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Peppa Pig. Peppa Pig inspires people of all ages to jump through life and its muddy puddles with enthusiasm. The relatable stories, oinks and giggles have made her preschooler's first best friend, helping them navigate everyday life with unabashed exuberance. And now you can discover new playtime adventures with your little ones. Jump into spring and hunt for muddy puddles in Peppa's caravan playset. Hit the road for endless adventures and have heaps of fun with Peppa's whole family. Oinks and giggles are guaranteed. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence since 2004. Peppa Pig is a trademark of Hasbro created by Mark Baker and Neville Astley. Very happy to be joined by Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheiner, also known as Daniels. I'm going to tell you right now, I was blown away by everything, everywhere, all at once. Congratulations. Thanks for doing the show.
3: Oh my God, thank you. Thank it's, you. Uh, very excited to be here. This is a, uh, yeah, our our producers love this podcast. And so they were like, this is the first thing they text us like, oh my God, you guys are going to be on the big picture. So uh, we're very excited to be talking to you.
1: I'm excited to ask you about this movie. Actually, so Shiner, we talked a few years ago around the death of Dick Long and you explained this movie to me and I thought you were pranking me. I thought it, I thought it was a joke. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't a joke.
0: I love. Uh, we have a lot of joke movie pitches, and then sometimes we make them.
1: You, you made this one.
3: <laughs> yeah. We'll we'll save that for the end of this uh, episode. Just yeah, a couple, yeah. We'll,
1: we'll leave you with a couple of yeah. pitches. Ooh, are you, they actually going to make you, that you one? Yeah, you for <laughs> real um so i'm curious let's go back to after swiss army man um did hollywood hollywood come calling you guys to take on your the franchise entertainments and the big movies or did you always want to stay on the path of making these original stories that you want to tell
0: we were just reflecting on this this morning that like uh before hollywood called uh uh, journalists asked us if they were calling just like this (laughs) and i think it planted this seed in our brain of like what would we do uh like what, and and this became like our version of you know a Marvel movie. Um, yeah, because
3: what would happen early on in our careers was we'd be going to all these general meetings, and people would, would ask us what we're interested in making. And this is you know this is Hollywood with a couple capital H, and so we would pitch our our earnest ideas, just like the most bizarre things that we were excited to make. Um, and everyone would laugh. Everyone would be like, that's very interesting. And then, uh, we'd never hear from them again.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but actually, what do you want to make? Here's, yeah, exactly. Here's and proper IP we have. Or- and it was
3: actually kind of frustrating. Um, and so we, you know, this, this question of like, okay, if we were to actually make something within this system and whatever, um, w- within the confines of, a, of like a blockbuster or a, like a crowd pleaser, what would that look like? And it slowly evolved into this film, um, because we realized if we were stuck in that box, um, especially with at our status, you know, you don't have much power when you're, when you're an indie film director. And we know that. And, um, we knew we would not, our, our work would not thrive in that environment. And so we realized we had to come up with a, our own pipeline, our own way towards this kind of film. Um, and it took a lot of time. Um, and thank God our producers were all very patient and, um, I'm very proud of the film because I think we balanced something really interesting. The, the spectacle of a blockbuster, but with the heart of an indie film. Um, I've, in another interview, I called it, it like the impossible burger. You know, they were trying to figure out how to make vegan food taste like, uh, beef and i'm like that's what we were it took us so long because we were engineering mm. uh fake meats. let's
0: call it the beyond sausage of movies <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's my favorite <laughs> fake meat it's
3: really good yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. beyond I'm,
0: sausage it's
1: insane like it's it's unsettling it's magic i've never tried it but if it's like the movie i'm into it um you know <laughs> yeah. I, I i had never seen uh Possibilia until last night this 2014 short film that you guys made and i was going to ask you about the multiverse and your interest in the concept of a multiverse. I was wondering if it started with that, with that short. Mm. Um, Which came first, Possibilia or Interesting Ball? They were right around each other.
3: Yeah. And then, because um, we we did another short film that also kind of plays with infinity. It's almost the polar opposite, called Interesting Ball. But I feel like those two things were re- refractions of the same idea or the same feeling um, that produced this movie, Everything Everywhere.
0: And then like growing up we loved uh like extra trippy anime and like extra silly sci fi like uh Douglas Adams um mm-hmm. and or, stuff. Or
3: Vonnegut, yeah.
0: And so uh I think that stew made it so that a lot of our ideas would kinda like dip into this philosophical but funny stuff,
3: you know? And they also think because we are such maximalist artists, um we realized that the multiverse was going to be a really fertile playground for us to play in, um, where we could truly expand ourselves our, as, as, our, as directors and as writers to, uh, our furthest, uh, lengths. And also, I knew that we would be able to do it like no one else was going to try to do it. Like, I think that was the big thing we were playing with. like, we knew time travel movies had been overdone and there's so many different ways to do that. And I could see it coming down the pipeline that multiverse movies were going to be big, but I also knew that most people um, would be too big to risk actually diving into what the multiverse is truly about. And I think both of us were so excited about saying, I'm going to look at the multiverse. I'm going to bring an audience with us and we're going to truly stare down infinity um, and see what that does to narrative. So, yeah, we were
1: excited. <laughs> what, one of the things that I love about the movie is it feels like it is subsuming all of the things that have influenced it, you know, like 80s sci-fi and like you say, Vonnegut, Wong Kar-wai, horror movies, The Matrix, Jodorowsky, all this stuff feels like it's inside of the movie, but it's not homage and it's not winking. It's like it's making an effort to tell a true and earnest story that just from the lens, it seems like from the lens of people who just like that stuff. And that feels like a little different than a lot of movies that are so sort of referential these days. Is that something that you guys were conscious about? Did you say like, we don't want to do something that feels like something that's come before? Hmm. I don't, yeah. I don't know. We accidentally did
0: that. (laughs) 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 Like there was a, a moment late in the process where i was like oh do we actually want to reference you oh, know these things um, or no i think there's one in particular that bumped me but, but
3: we actually we referenced the matrix directly in, yeah, the, in an older draft which absolutely. was like and i was oh, like too much. but yeah.
0: then we like looked and we're like oh wait we've already accidentally put in 10 other jokes this movie is like I don't just, we just accidentally wrote something that's woven in with all the right. pop culture. It's, it's that...
3: not even jokes. It's, it is, it's the DNA of it. Actually. Right. I, I think what happened is like, um, when we think about, when we think about movies now, we don't think about, <laughs> it's not in a vacuum. You you think about the, the, the wealth of, of cinema history, you know, It all of us are so savvy when it comes to media and stories and, 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 um, uh, mass media specifically, that uh to be alive and to not be thinking about those things whenever you're walking around your life doesn't feel truthful and so to us the most most truthful version of this movie is this hyperlink version hypertext version where it's not referencing it it's fully taking its context and bringing it into it so that you can have a a a more fully realized expression um you know it's it's like what david foster wallace did with uh with uh Text. I I feel like we need to have something like that within the film world that actually fully embraces the context of the audience because they are, they, like I said, everyone who's going into this movie has already seen millions of movies and that is going to affect the way that they look at the movie. So we might as well embrace it.
0: (laughs) There was, I remember there was a moment when we were writing it where I realized that. If there's an infinite number of universes, uh, just an ever expanding infinity, uh, then every single movie ever made is a true story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they all exist somewhere out there.
1: Yeah. Uh, and being like, "Whoa," <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you about that. Actually, I have a, a, a lot of questions about the writing of the movie, particularly because, you know, there's it's just an incredible feat of editing this movie and you've got so many images in the movie and I'm wondering did you write every image or how, how did you essentially when you presented to the actors this concept and said you're going to see hundreds of multiversal variations of your character in the script would it say here's this one here's this one here's this one here's this one like how, how did you make that text yeah
3: so early drafts we said everything and there was like about 240 pages. And so we started putting <laughs> things out and uh, then we started to learn to list off the ones that were important. And then, you know, to our, to our amazing crew say like, these are the things that matter. Everything else surprises.
0: Yeah. I, we're going to try to sneak some more in. Let us yeah. know if you have any ideas, but yeah. also don't spend too much time or money.
3: Exactly. Spend as little resources as possible, but try to, we're going to, we're trying to fill our bucket to infinity. So let's get there. Um And so people would bring, bring whatever they had in their garage or they would walk by a yard sale or they would just be like, I'm really passionate about this. Can we put this in there? And so the way you make a movie like this is actually to, rather than, rather than controlling everything and making sure everything is exactly how you wanted it. You have to, we had to leave a lot of room for our collaborators to fill it in with their own passion and almost like direct their own, uh their own scenes, you know, like, like certain shots were like this, Shots only in there because our production designer is obsessed with this. Or, you know, like, I think about the, the hot dog universe, the, that the art design and the set decoration of that space is so, uh, funny and beautiful. It's all hot dog colors. It's like pink and brown and like really well rendered. And we're like, don't spend any time on that. We don't have time. Just like make it as basic as possible. But our crew, our art director, Kelsey Ephraim was like, or sorry, not our set decorator, Kelsey Ephraim was like, I'm. So, I, I want to. I love this universe, and I want to put my heart into it. So I'm going to. It feel. was her
0: pet project. Like yeah, exactly. Anytime she had extra time, she was like, "Ooh, I'm going to
1: look up some more hot dog furniture." <laughs> <laughs> that's so. That's really funny because I wanted to ask you both. Like, this is such a big story in terms of scale, and there, like I said, there's so many images that you're making for the movie. Was there ever a time when it felt like you would maybe bit off more than you could chew, or that it got too big for you when you were making it? Every day. <laughs>
3: I think, I think every project we, we truly care about, we, we take off, we, we, you know, it's, it's a little bit more than we can handle. And I think that's what we are, are looking for when we're looking for a new project. Especially
0: to, as a duo, it's kind of yeah helpful sometimes to be like, oh, I need him. Like yes.
3: I cannot <laughs> do this alone. <laughs> tag yeah. team
0: you're in. Yeah. It's literally impossible for me to do this by myself.
3: <laughs> yeah. And and I, I think we want to grow from every project we want to learn we want to we basically we write, we write movies that we know we cannot do now but we hope we can grow into and this film is which we were like literally had no idea that it would be possible to to kind of to thread the needle of the, the tonal needle of this movie um and so much of it happened because uh because our incredible crew also mm-hmm. trusted us. Um, they knew that we were all kind of jumping off an airplane and learning how to build the, uh, the uh, what do you call it? Parachute along the way, you know? Uh, so yeah, every day we were like, I don't know how we're going to do this, but we're going to try. There were a few
0: days where everything went according to plan. And it was right. a pretty manageable, normal movie. yeah. But <laughs> yeah. not
1: not. <laughs> yeah. I actually wanted to ask you both how you direct together. I'm so interested in directing duos and are you is, is one of you better with actors is one of you better with you know visualization is do you do you actually tag team like you said daniel do you say like okay you're it's your turn to now work on the heavy lifting of this day
0: um a lot of times uh it's um it changes on every project and every day but um we kind of have a shorthand where we know certain things we should we can't decide without the other person definitely present you know so like an actor will ask a question and we'll be like i don't know yet like give me one moment you know like let's let's hash this out and then other times um enthusiasm just wins the day and it's kind of like oh i care the most about this i'm gonna spearhead it and you're my wingman um yeah so like it,
3: it's really it's really lovely to have that as a director because when you have to care about everything i think you that's when that's when the process gets really stressful and that's when you start to pass that stress off onto other people and it becomes uh really detrimental to the collaboration of everyone and so the fact that like you know shiner is he comes from the theater world he used to he was a an actor in college so he's very passionate about actors, um, and casting and specifically how casting is done. Um, and so he takes the lead on a lot of that stuff. Whereas like, I, I came, I come from like photography and, and animation. And so I'm, I love to just sit down and shot list and, and draw out things and just make sure everything is going to work uh, and sing in the most interesting way. And then we compare notes and it becomes, you know, then we merge, um, everything, but being able to just, just Focus on one thing we truly love is, is such a uh, gift as a filmmaker.
0: When it, uh, yeah, I was just thinking about like, and then like working with actors, it definitely is just constantly changing. And I feel like, uh, a lot of times you talk to actors the way a writer would, like Quan really understands where the characters have come from. And if the actor wants like backstory or details or to get as nitty gritty as possible, like, Kwan's a lot better at that. And then if, and then I used to be an actor and want to, want to be an actor. And I think I'm good at like giving them a sandbox to play in or, or helping like be like, don't worry about that. Just focus on this. Like, here's some very succinct, like, uh, direction, you know, um, and that kind of directing. Is when I jump in, you know. Yeah,
1: um,
3: yeah, he's very good at creating a good environment.
0: Before. I'm
1: like, Dan, you're saying too much. They don't need to know all that. <laughs> <laughs> you are also an actor. I mean, you're in this. You're in this movie. You've been in some movies, you know. What? No, my twin brother. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> a cameo. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just want to say
3: that cameo that he's in. For anyone who hasn't seen it, um, it was probably I won't I won't spoil it, but uh, it was probably Michelle's like favorite moment of the movie.
2: It's yeah. very, it's very
0: funny. Uh, I, it, you know, we, we cast me during the movie again. Uh, and, uh, and, it, and I think the thing that really tipped us over was just like us realizing how much fun Michelle would have um, <laughs> spanking me
1: work so hard. <laughs> Shiner, when you were telling me about the movie a few years ago, the only thing that seemed real about the pitch was Michelle Yeoh as the person who was involved and you you used her name and and obviously that was really exciting to hear obviously she's a an icon in many ways but also maybe this is a moment when everyone's gonna be like oh yeah she's an icon so why her why was she the right person for all of the Evelyns
0: yeah um I mean we're just fans uh <laughs> and um and then we accidentally wrote a role that like uh especially if you're if you're looking for like bankable stars uh who can do action because we didn't want to, you know, use shaky camera or um, point away from the lead actor during the fight scenes um, who can speak Chinese and English uh, is a very small list. And we were like, oh my God, if she says no or if, if it turns out she's, you know, wrong for the part or like we're bet We don't we can't collaborate with her like this whole movie falls apart
1: Um and do comedy too. I mean, she can do comedy which is like totally maybe the hardest thing to do out of all those things
3: which you get a taste of Michelle doing that early on in her career especially with Jackie Chan stuff like there was physical humor there but like she has not done much of that lately there hasn't been much of an opportunity for her to do that so um even like even though we knew she had it in her we were we were actually really blown away by how funny she was like there's so many moments in this movie where like she's legitimately funny and I think uh, people are going to be really surprised and i think other filmmakers are going to start looking at her differently and th- and seeing her as like someone who can play anything honestly mm-hmm. she can play everything <laughs> she's proven it this is this is her acting role her, her actor's real you know she doesn't she, like
0: to sing you know, that's the one uh, thing she but she's great do. at lip syncing
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> can you tell me about uh kiwi kwan as well who you know i think people have not seen in front of a camera for a long time and is like basically still perfect at be doing his thing like it's kind of <laughs> remarkable who knew oh my god <laughs> it's pretty wild like had, where did the idea to cast him in this come from and was he did he get it right away like was there any anxiety about going back and doing something like this
3: yeah it's so funny uh we we struggled with casting almost every role because every role required like three or four different um characters which meant like 10 different boxes every character had to, every actor had to check off and so a lot of
0: like Chinese actors we love uh that we we kind of like start brainstorming like what if it's this person what if it's that person um but like a lot of especially action stars are like alpha men like they're real macho and the part wasn't that um and so we were like
3: it was hard Who's to the person for this yeah we we did some auditions here and there and it was hard to shake that from you know you know bona fide stars and so this uh one day I was scrolling through the internet and I saw a picture of short round, you know, just like a little gif of short round. And I was like, what is, what is short round up to? What is data up to? You know, I grew up on the Goonies and I, I did the math and I was like, he might be the right age. And so we started doing some research, found out that he, w- you know, was part of the stunt team for X Men, Brian Singer's X Men. He was, um, he was a black belt in, in Taekwondo. Uh, he went to, uh, China to, uh, and did some soap opera stuff over there. So like, we're like, this guy might be perfect. Um, but I don't know if he's still acting. And so, or where in the world
0: he lives. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then it, uh, turned out like there was like, it was miraculous good timing. He just gotten excited about getting back into acting uh a few weeks before came and auditioned and uh when he walked in I thought maybe he was doing like a bit like like coming to the audition in character as Waymond, you know, because he was so happy and hyper
3: and <laughs> sweet. Uh yeah he he walked into a room and immediately just starts complimenting you. Yeah guys like, 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 oh, hi, hi,
0: nice, hi nice to meet you.
3: <laughs> uh, and like uh and we
0: were like this is wild. Uh didn't he do some taekwondo in the audition? Like he was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know some." And he yeah. did a punch and a kick.
3: Yeah, he did that. Like a we're... sharp kick. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> so we we loved him right away. Um and then uh unfortunately, we didn't uh tell we didn't tell him he had the part for like a month or two and uh
3: because we were just shuffling around. like a we lot shuffling, of stuff yeah, shuffling trying to get the movie put together and, and and we didn't want to reach out unless we knew the movie was happening. So so he yeah. thought
0: he he thought he didn't have the part. Um yeah. and uh And when we told him, uh, he was, uh, extremely excited.
3: Um, I mean, yeah, him and his wife cried when they got the part and Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's hard to, uh, oversell how, how important this role was for to to him and how much it meant to him. Um, because it does really embody his spirit in a way that, um, surprised us. Mm -hmm. And also it just proves to the world how much of a treasure he was even back then. Um, and to have him back in this movie, I think people are going to be psyched. It's it's fan, it's a fantastic
1: role. It's kind of hard to picture the movie without him now. You know, I'm like, I, is there another person who could have done the thing that he does, you know, on, on both the sort of like the sensitive aspect of that role and also the physical aspect of that role too is just like, but it's very similar to Michelle, obviously, but we just haven't seen him in forever. So it's it's pretty wild that you guys pulled that off.
0: <laughs> it's one of my favorite things about casting a live action movie is that uh then then it's less pressure on me like it, like if they take over the character and the script starts to change and suddenly like i'm there like the movie starts to rewrite itself around the these cast members um to the point now where i'm like uh yeah i can't imagine anyone in it other than him like how did i I don't even remember what it was like writing it, you know, like yeah. it's just key. <laughs> yeah. That's so
1: interesting. The, the mother daughter relationship is one of the more complex that really I've ever seen in a movie like this. And very, like very modern, very contemporary, um, mm-hmm. but also very like deep and traditional in a way too. Why, why is that really at the center of the story?
2: Mm.
0: There's a lot of reasons, but one joke one, uh, cause you want to joke right now, right? Is, <laughs> Please, uh, my sincere question. Is that, uh, we make very weird movies, and uh, over the years, showing those movies to our moms has been very funny. <laughs>
3: and just a, r- a real adventure for yeah, yeah. Like, all
0: right, mom, here's what I'm up to. Like, <laughs> uh, you gotta learn how. Here's another window into my brain, um, and that kind of inspired the relationship of Joy and Evelyn. You know, like like Joy blossoms as the movie goes on into like this psychedelic, multiversal, crazy character and like that character. So like Joe Boo kind of represents um, our Oov and what it's like to like show your mom a music video where, where someone humps things until they explode, you know, and then
3: <laughs> like, I like, I feel like the more expanded metaphor that anyone of our generation can relate with is the fact that this film, the, mul- in this film, the multiverse becomes a, a really interesting metaphor for the internet. And the fact that our parents grew up without it and we did and how much of a chasm that that created between our generations that feels i know every generation deals with 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 that gap um but for some reason this one just feels massive in a way that like is hard to explain and so this movie was our one of our ways to kind of process that and and say like it's messy out there and it's really hard to connect and see through all that noise um but we wanted it to be a sympathetic portrait of both, both sides of, you know, from my mother's side, how hard it is to relate with me, um, as an immigrant, as a, as a boomer, as a, for so many different reasons. Um, as someone who yeah. like, put
0: me through college exactly, and now has yeah. to watch my, yeah. um, my music video. Like that's gotta be hard. Yeah.
3: And so like, yeah, so it's, 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 it was really important to us that this film captured, um, the most important things that were small and the most important things that were massive and cosmic and find a way to reconcile them in the same film um, and so to us like I love that we were able to create a small nuanced relationship between these two people that wasn't washed out by the noise, that wasn't washed out by the action and the, and the humor and all these things, because that's almost the thesis of the film is saying, like, despite all the noise, despite all this big, loud stuff, this, this quiet stuff is the most important part. And if we can make that shine through, even though we have Everything else happening, every genre, every emotion um, happening, um, that was that was going to be a triumph, and that was going to be what the movie needed. Otherwise, the movie was, wasn't wasn't going to work. So we worked a really long time on making that nuanced relationship special. Mm. Yeah,
1: the I'm a fairly cynical person, and so there's something very like appealing about the everything bagel and like the vast <laughs> agglomerated nothingness of life, and <laughs> uh, I. There was a part of me that as I was watching the movie, I was like, actually, this is the answer. And obviously the film is very hopeful, it feels like at the end. But I I was hoping you could kind of talk about that that idea and like how you visualize that and the fact that it is kind of like this psychedelic thing, but also weirdly a kind of practical thing about how you can just kind of go into an abyss and just settle there for a while. Like, where did that come from?
0: Yeah, I mean, a very early germ of the entire film was um, if we were going to do a multiverse movie i didn't want to go to just a couple and and then gloss over just how existential the idea of infinite universes is um and and so then we started writing an impossible screenplay about <laughs> an infinite number of uh movies um in the same movie uh and and eventually we kind of needed a symbol to represent
3: nihilism nihilism yeah. you
0: know it was like Okay, we can't like just flash between universes. There's got to be something to hold on to and
3: and specifically and- something that wasn't going to make you roll your eyes. Um you know, like when you talk about nothing matters, it's such an eye-rolly thing because everyone is talking about it now, but it's also like you can't talk about it either because it feels so uh, <clears throat> cringy, uh, as they say, or cringe, as they say. Um, but
0: if it's a joke and then the eye roll was our, was on purpose. So, yeah.
3: Uh, <laughs> but, <I was> like, <laughs> we but know what we're doing. <laughs> initially, there
0: was just a joke where, like, uh, the villain would be like, like, oh, over there's the everything bagel. I put everything on it. Um,
3: yeah, and it then throw away. But yeah. it was like a
0: joke. We, whenever we pitched it to people, they'd be like, that's very funny. And then it, we were like, oh, that's valuable to have a, th- thing to look at
3: um and i think it's really important for and i like bagels
0: and a bagel, lot yeah, yeah we eat a
1: lot of everything bagels are incredible yeah. I, yeah I
3: think it's important right now we're in a <laughs> weird time where um everything has meaning attached to it and there's so much meaning attached to everything and we have to somehow make sense of it and like i've once read that there's two responses to the current meaning crisis we have one is you um, dig your heels in and you become even more dogmatic with what you believe to kind of protect yourself and shield yourself from the meaning onslaught. And then there's the uh, other direction, which I think a lot of younger people are going towards, which is this feeling of nihilism. You know, the world is ending and I have nothing. I, I literally cannot do anything because, uh, there is a million things happening all at once and who's going to care about what I do or say. And so it was actually really important for us to grapple with nihilism. Um, on a personal level, because we don't know how to process it yet, and so the movie starts, and we have a main character who believes everything matters, and you see her fall apart because she's trying to hold on to every thread, and then the movie introduces this villain who says, "I have something for you. Nothing matters," which becomes really scary for our main character who um, does not want to hear it, and then the movie goes on a massive, wild journey um, that's like basically a fun roller coaster ride uh, about nihilism, <laughs> and that ultimately ends in a really um beautiful place where it says um nothing matters but maybe that is beautiful because now we can do we can make anything we want matter you know we we get to choose what we get to choose what matters and in the case of this film the the thing that matters are the people around us and uh, i think if we can find a way to um you know, just process that idea in different, through different lenses, through different stories, you know, not, not mm-hmm. just our story, but I think a lot of people need to be tackling this problem to give, you know, the young people and ourselves, all of us, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter if you're young or old, we're all grappling with it, but to give us an answer um, to how to <laughs> exist today. Yeah, Yeah.
0: like I, um, I think I'm pretty cynical as well. Uh, and, and so like exploring that was kind of scary and fun and, therapeutic and uh yeah and then brought us to the point where we kind of felt like oh wow there's some value in in cynicism like and and nihilism and like i'm not crazy to feel those thoughts uh and in fact those thoughts can actually make you a kinder nicer person um because if like if 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 nothing matters, then w- might as well be a nice person.
2: Like, For <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
1: <laughs> That and the, and the whole concept really speaks to me. So thank you. Um, so we end every episode of the show by asking filmmakers, what's the last great thing that they have seen? Mm. I get the impression you guys watch a lot. Do you watch a lot? No, like I just, I just it kind of depends.
0: I just had a
3: kid. I he just, watches just,
0: his son uh, watch YouTube videos about train light. Oh problems. wow! How a old lot. is
3: how old is your kid? He's only three, so you know he's three. three. Okay, yeah. So he, he's he's just understanding. He's just beginning to understand the world. So I'm watching a lot of things to help him do that, um, rather than movies. But I'm trying to think about the last thing. I, w- I also want to caveat, neither of us are cinephiles. Like we love films, but I consider myself more like I love games. I love comic books. I love anime. I love poetry. I you know I think so mm-hmm. much, a lot of our biggest inspirations, even though film is like the literal inspiration, there's just so much that like, you know, we, you know, we love PTA, but we also love uh, YouTube. So it's like, that's kind of what this movie is. And so don't ask us any cinephile questions. We're, we're going to embarrass I ourselves. I just
0: asked you one. You got to give me know. something.
3: Okay. Favorite thing. <laughs>
0: Oh, just something good I saw recently. Yeah, uh, anything.
1: I, I mean it could be something on YouTube, honestly, if you if, yeah, if
0: you... At South by I went to a a live show presented by the three busy Debras, which are these three uh comedians who have a show on Adult Swim. Um, and they're just these like nightmare suburban housewives who do kind of like uh like anti-comedy bits. And uh it was so thrilling. It was real fun. And they had like a. a a cast of people come out and do stand up sets. Uh, and there was one in particular that blew my mind. It was so good. The guy's name was Ike something. I gotta look it up. Uh, but he, he like, uh, plays a teacher on the show and he just came out and just like stood perfectly still and started slowly telling these extremely linguistically complicated jokes. Um, and it was almost like he didn't even acknowledge they were funny and it killed the audience. Like you slowly got on his wavelength and it was just, the funniest. Uh, he was like he did some bit where he was like he's like, uh, and I just want to tell you right off the bat, I'll be using the word to in all three of the ways that the word can be used, and then <laughs> and then and a minute later, you realized he'd done it, and like he got a spontaneous applause because there was like, oh,
3: oh. in that one sentence yeah. He, oh, it, uh, anyway, that's, that's very
1: that was the best thing I've seen. <laughs> that's that's a great answer.
3: I would say, um, pen fifteen, um, the last season. Season 2.5. I love it when I watch TV fully become itself, you know, fully mature into what is the truest form of, 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 of that world. Um, you know, like I think season two of Fleabag was that for, for Phoebe Waller Bridges. Um, and so Pen 15, that entire last season is incredible because it is doing all of its silly things that it does with like the fact that they're playing, um, middle school versions of themselves while just hitting the hardest, most personal things that you could hit um, when talking about middle school. And there's one episode in particular um, where Maya, you know, one of the actresses and creators um, actually directed an episode completely about her mom. And I remember watching the move, the, the TV show actually not realizing that her mom actually plays her mom in the show. Right. Wow. So I watched the whole thing and I was so moved the entire time because of how, how beautiful um, of a love letter that it was to her parent, to her, you know, as 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 someone who is now a parent themselves, I, I was like, this is incredibly moving. And then I found out that she was directing her home her own mom the entire time, and I was like, this is like transcends TV or or narrative. This is like it's a like performance per- art, yeah. Therapy, it's like, yeah. It's like therapy. It's like it's like one of the new forms of, of of filmmaking that I'm really interested in is like this where where you use these big productions to process. Um yeah, your life and trauma and and, and relationships. Um, hoping that other people will be able to relate with it as well. Um, it's such a beautiful thing. So, anyways, Pen 15's latest season, amazing.
1: Mm. That's great. His name Guys. is Ike Ufomadu. Okay. Uh, yeah. I will seek him out and and three busy Debras as well. Another. Guys, listen, it's very rare that I see a movie and I'm like, this movie will be with me for a long time and I really love it. And I really, really love everything everywhere all at once. So seriously, congratulations and, and thanks for chatting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Daniels. Thank you to the listeners of this show for all your great questions. Thanks and welcome back to Bobby Wagner for his work on this episode. Tune in later this week to the big picture. We're going to be talking about another cinematic achievement. I'm talking, of course, about Morbius, starring Jared Leto. And then we're going to be talking about vampire movies, which I love. See you then.